Welcome to this month's U.S. Center for Coaching Excellence podcast. I'm Sam Cowan. I'm your host, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Amanda Visick today. Dr. Visick probably researched most everyone who's listened to podcasts has read. She is currently an associate professor at the George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Visick earned her Ph.D. from West Virginia University in sport and exercise psychology, where she also has a Master's of Arts in Community Counseling and a Master's of Science in Sports Psychology, both from West Virginia University. She did her undergraduate work at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where she earned bachelor's degrees in psychology and also exercise in sports science. And I'm thrilled to have Dr. Visick on in a moment here to talk about her research and maybe give a little more background to what went into the research, how it came about, and I think maybe just dig more into what um, we've probably read in either popular media or maybe just in small doses or for those who have not read the research. So without uh, further ado, Dr. Visick uh, is joining me on the podcast. Hey, welcome to the USCC podcast, and I am delighted to have Dr. Amanda Visick on the line today to talk about her research, in um, which I think everybody probably who's listening to this podcast is familiar with it. I wanted to do a little bit of a, a dive into the research and um, talk about one of my favorite topics, methodology, and um, also um, find out just a little bit maybe more about the research that isn't out there. So, Dr. Visick, welcome. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Cool. So, uh, let's start out with talking a little bit about your own sports background. Yeah, I. Uh, so, I'm an Army kid at heart. Uh, grew up mostly uh, in Europe, overseas as a child, and my brother and I were both really involved in everything from playing outside, which a lot of kids don't do anymore in terms of free play. Um, that, that was a big part of our, our physical activity. Um, and then also getting involved in organized sports, so everything from Little League, um, baseball, I got into gymnastics, he got into soccer, then eventually when we came stateside, we both got involved in uh, in winter sports. So I specialized in figure skating and he ended up specializing in ice hockey. So that's sort of our um, my athletic background. Um, so did that all growing up and have found myself as an adult, uh, as a runner. <laughs> well, Running is a great thing. I'm a I'm a self-described runner myself, yeah. and so uh, yeah, it, it catches a lot of us. I went through high school running, and so a little bit different path to it uh, than you with from the gymnastics to the figure skating. Um, what about a coaching background? Have you done any coaching in your background? Yeah, when I was uh, when I went away to school at UNC Chapel Hill, and um, would come home on the you know the school breaks, winter holidays, things like that, and I would. I would uh, coach ice skating, figure skating lessons for a number of years off and on. Very cool. And I went over your academic background a little bit in the uh, introduction, but what got you interested in looking at youth sports and and this aspect of it that we'll get into in just a minute? Yeah. uh, So my, when I was, when I was in my doctoral program at West Virginia University, um, it was, there was a, probably I would describe as an equal balance emphasis between doing research and also applied work. Um, and in the process of, of my supervised and mentored experiences doing sports psychology and working primarily with collegiate athletes, there myself and uh, two of my very close friends and colleagues um, were actually, I think kind of probably among the first to really, have an interest and start working with younger athletes. Um, And so in the process of looking to the literature, the applied literature, um, as well as our mentors to kind of help guide that work that we were doing, one of the things that we noticed at the time was that there was just a real kind of dearth, a lack of applied literature in working with that population. And so it was something that we kind of, um, I think applied our best practices and developmental psychology when working with kids, um, and intersected that with traditional sports psychology, uh, and kind of started to carve out, I think 
what's become for for all three of us uh, sort of a, a niche in terms of, of working with this specific population. Um, and then it wasn't until actually I came to, to West Virginia, or sorry, to uh, George Washington University here in D.C. Uh, that I sort of pivoted my research focus um, more towards engaging children, adolescents um, in sport as a solution to the public health crisis that we have in terms of a lack of physical activity among children. Okay. So if you were to, again, most folks who listen to this probably are familiar with your work, but to put everybody yeah. on equal footing, maybe give some summary of what your research has found out in terms of what kids want from sports. Yeah, so we, uh, my, my team has really focused on studying the number one determinant of what keeps kids involved in sport, and that's fun. Um, and so as a, as a sport scientist uh, and applied practitioner as well, I thought, well, isn't it interesting that when you look at the research literature, there's all this data, all of these studies that say, and point to fun as being that that number one determinant, that number one factor that keeps kids involved. But as far as having some sort of theoretical framework or model that we could follow as practitioners, whether as sports psychology practitioners working with youth sport organizations, parents, coaches, or even you know practical models that coaches could follow in terms of creating the this type of experience for kids that was the most fun, there, again, there really wasn't anything out there. And so that's primarily what drove the research that I've been doing uh, for a number of years that's, that's really around fun. And what we've specifically done is we have engaged hundreds of young athletes, and they have essentially mapped fun for us in a very innovative way. Well, that's a, that's a good place to jump into this because I, I think the first time I ever saw this, I kind of imagined, I, I think I just saw an abstract or probably a write-up somewhere and I thought, oh, send out a survey monkey thing and ask people to give these responses and stuff. But that's not what you did. Describe how you came about with, how you came about with it because it sounds like a lot more work than yeah. a survey monkey survey. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was quite rigorous and and quite involved. Um, took a lot of time, a lot of resources, and um, we were actually I, I was I was quite fortunate to be able to get these studies funded by the National Institutes of Health. Um, so we had federal we had federal um, federal funding to do concept mapping with kids, and essentially what we did is we engaged them in this really rigorous applied social science research methodology that takes the best of qualitative research methods along with quantitative research methods and intersects them in such a way that we're able to produce these visual illustrations of young athletes' ideas and all of their data in this really cool framework that displays really highly complex multivariate data in a simple visual display that is easy for any stakeholder to understand. So that was really, I think, appealing and important to me as a scientist practitioner because it's, for me, what's most important is that the science that we do in the sports space needs to be translatable, right? And so unless I could do this in such a way that coaches, parents, sport organizations could utilize in a very simple and easy way, then it just ends up being, you know, a really cool study that sits on, on a shelf in an academic journal. Right. And so my my passion here was really about doing something by engaging the kids because sport is meant to be a child derived activity and leveraging their voices in such a way that we could then provide all 
of the evidentiary data that parents, coaches, league administrators, sport organizations need in order to provide better experiences that will keep kids involved in sport longer. And I think that's something that has resonated with many of us who are in this sports world and, and particularly working with the youth part is, is something we can also take out and show to parents and coaches about, you know, look, here's what the kids are saying. I think that's what's so critical to your research was it, it wasn't the parents who were giving the answers for their kids. You got these kids in a room and had them doing this. Um, maybe describe a little bit like what was the age range and sports backgrounds of those kids? Yeah, so we we engage children as young as eight years old all the way up to age 19. And we recruited them primarily from the sport of soccer. And we did that because there's a huge saturation of soccer in this particular area. Um, and soccer is one of the most accessible sports to children, regardless of background, socioeconomic status, all of those things. Um, so we were lo really looking for a sport that we could embed ourselves within the community for a number of years as we were working with kids um, across these different studies that we did. And so what's, I think what's important um, from a research as well as an application standpoint is that we didn't want the research and the studies that we were doing to be specific to soccer, right? So yeah, soccer is, is one of the most accessible sports, the highly popular sport, but not every child plays soccer. Um, but given the, the rigor of the methodology that we were using, we really needed to embed ourselves in the sports space in one specific sport. And so one of the things that we did to kind of overcome the limitation of this just being germane to soccer was that through the research process, um, as we were collecting all of this data from the, from the young athletes, was to get them to brainstorm and to rate things according to their experiences across their different um, sport experiences. So when we looked at the, the sample, um, specifically in the first study, which is, is the de development of the fun maps, 75.5% of the kids in that study also played sports other than soccer. So we did our best to make things as generalizable as possible because we wanted to be able to engage these kids in the process of concept mapping fun and have these visual blueprints that were generalizable across lots of team sports. Very interesting. Well, I think it's interesting that you, that that higher percentage of kids were one playing multiple sports and um, and I think that does help to generalize it out. One of the you know concerns that I always have with research, and you and I talked about this before we started recording, is just that the ability to extrapolate out to larger populations. I think that helps out with that a lot. That it wasn't just kids who had you know at eight had started playing soccer and never played any other sport. So that that's uh, that's really neat. And like you said, soccer is a pretty accessible sport and uh, is is fairly ubiquitous. Um, right. Right. Yep. So with that, cool. So, um, so I'm looking, I'm actually, one of the things I did was I just pulled up, I pulled up a slide that we use in one of our uh, coaching clinics at USA yeah. Ultimate. And it is, it, and it's kind of bullet points on what is fun for a kid. So Hi. what are some of the things that uh, kids reported back that they consider to be fun? And even before we kind of go into that, one of the things to keep in mind for folks is that that definition of fun changes. You said you had kids from age eight to 19. So yes. what's fun for the eight-year-old might not be fun for the 19-year-old and vice versa as well. So, but generally what, uh, what were kids defining as fun or what made something fun? Yeah, great question. So the concept mapping, um, it involved engaging these young athletes in three specific research activities. So the first activity is what we call brainstorming. So that's the qualitative component of this. So we started by asking them to, to come up with as many ideas as they possibly could by finishing the sentence stem 
one thing that makes playing sports fun for players is. And they then generated an entire list of everything that they could think of that made soccer, football, ice hockey, basketball, baseball, whatever the sports were that they played, fun. And so that was that was the first part of concept mapping was brainstorming. So we did that with hundreds of kids. We took all of that data back. We analyzed the data. And what we found across all of them was that there was a discrete list, essentially, of 81 specific fun determinants. So collectively, what that means is they identified 81 specific things, actions and behaviors that make playing sport fun for them. The second activity, research activity that we asked them to do was called sorting. So what we did was we took all 81 of those fun determinants that they had generated. We placed them on a laminated card. And so each kid each young athlete then sat with that deck of cards, the entire 81, and we asked them to pile sort those cards in a way that made sense to them, right? So there's essentially no right or wrong way. It's their conceptualization of, of what makes sense to them. So as they sat and they pile sorted, we also gave them a post-it pad and a pen and we said, as you're pile sorting, you're creating all your different piles and you can create as many or as few as you want. Tell us what you would name that pile, each of the piles. And say so they would they would write the name down on the post-it pad and put it next to the pile. So after all the kids had sorted, we recorded all of that sort data as well. And then the final activity that we had them do immediately after was rating. So we asked them using iPads to rate all 81 determinants on a scale of one, not important, up to five, I think being extremely important. How important each of the 81 determinants were to them for having fun, right? So the way that we kind of broached this was they did a phenomenal job of identifying 81 specific things, right? But from a practical standpoint, as a coach, you want to know, okay, this is great. What's most important, right? Everything can't be equally important. So we went back and told the kids, we need you to help us discern what is most important from what is less important for you. And so they rated all 81. So essentially, then concept mapping is one brainstorming all of their qualitative ideas two sorting all of those ideas in a way that made sense to them. And then three rating all of those fun ideas in terms of their importance. So when we take all of that data back and we analyze it and aggregate it, we can then produce these concept maps, which are visual blueprints of how children conceptualize fun. And so what we found was the 81 specific fun determinants, the young athletes sorted on average those 81 determinants into 11 piles, or what we call factors. And so those included trying hard, positive team dynamics, positive coaching, learning and improving, game time support, games, practices, team friendships, mental bonuses, team rituals, and then lastly, swag. <laughs> Right. I love so, the swag is on there. That's just <laughs> fantastic to me. Yeah, I always say that's my favorite, right? Um, now, so the other thing that's really cool about this is that we wanted part of part of the power of concept mapping is its ability to leverage the voices and ideas of the research participants, right? So in this case, we're talking about young athletes. And what we did in terms of, you know, all the ideas that they generated, those 81, 
we retained their specific way of describing those 81 actions and behaviors. Same thing with all the different labels or names that they gave on the post-it, right? So the list that I just kind of rattled off, trying hard all the way, you know, everything up to swag, again, all of that is in the language of the young athletes, right? So all of the ideas, all of the determinants that they grouped into each of those piles or what we call factors, everything is in their own language. And I appreciate, even though I have a little bit of training in the sciences, that uh, you didn't academicize the language in there. You know, <laughs> throw some, <clears throat> you know, multi-syllable words in there for swag, you know, um, and something like that. So uh, I, I appreciate that. And I think that I think that's one of the things that actually many people have found accessible about it is, yeah, that makes sense to me. I understand this. I, I understand that the idea of, you know, trying hard. Um without, like I said, coming up with some kind of fancy academic term for that that you could probably do. Um, when, with one of, the, one of those um, factors is mm-hmm. positive coaching. So what were some things that maybe were, were in that pile that kids would say represented positive coaching to them or allowed for that? Yeah, so when we talk about, when they talked about positive coaching, you know, really what they're talking about is having a coach that's highly knowledgeable about the sport, right? So someone that they can truly learn from, a coach that um, that they feel comfortable with, that is approachable, someone that not only is a really good active listener, um, but when they communicate verbally, non-verbally, um, with them as well, that they, that the coach's communication, that their instruction is very clear and it's very concise. Um, and that in doing so as part of the learning process, what these young athletes are saying emulates positive coaching for them as someone that is also someone that allows mistakes as part of the athletic development process and continues to be encouraging at the same time. So it's a lot less kind of, you know, directing instructions, but really talking about, you know, coaching in such a way and a style that, um, they really get them to critically think about what they're doing, why they're doing, what what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing, um, in a way that that gets them to understand the game at a deeper level, right? So we talk about fostering, you know, game concept or you know, um, soccer IQ, hockey IQ, whatever it is, the sport. Um, so, so really what we're talking about in terms of positive coaching is not just sort of the kind of personal characteristics, or, but also the, the philosophy and the implementation and approach of what that actually looks like on the field. I think that's, that's really helpful. I think that's an area that many of us uh, kind of in the NGB world are moving towards some of that, teaching those coaches those things more than just the X's and the O's and the tactics and things like that. Did you... And you you may not have hard numbers on this, but maybe if you have a sense of that, was that pretty? You felt like it was pretty consistent across the age range of the of the um, of your uh, subjects and the participants in the study. Yeah. So what we found was that when we aggregated all of their data together, so we're talking about kids as young as eight all the way up to nineteen girls and boys, um, and then equal numbers of kids that were playing at the recreational level, soccer, as well as the highly select, more travel um, elite levels. And so when we aggregated all of that data together to produce these concept maps that are the visual representation, the collective visual representation of these young athletes' ideas and all their data, what we found was that 
trying hard, positive team dynamics, and positive coaching were the top three fun factors. So those three fun factors include 28 specific fun determinants that were grouped into those three factors. And then we found that the bottom two factors were actually team rituals and swag. And so then the other ones are kind of clustered in the middle. And I think to your point in your question as well is, you know, one of the things that that doesn't matter whether it's coaches, parents, league administrators, um, organizations at large, everyone wants to really know, okay, like this is great. Now tell me where girls differ from boys, the younger kids differ from the older kids, as well as, you know, the rec kids from the travel kids, because they have to, they have to be different. That's sort of the, the assumption that we make. And, and what we found in, in our data, um, in the follow-up studies that we did on the fun maps was that there's really no discernible difference among them. So when you compare girls and boys, When you compare the older kids to the younger kids and the rec to the travel kids, they tend to rate what is most important to them in nearly the exact same way. And so it doesn't really matter how you slice the data. And we looked at every possible iteration and comparison across the various ways in which organized sport takes kids. Right. And then we kind of group them according to these three criteria. Right. What's their sex? What's their age? And what level are they playing at? And what we found time and time again in the data was that children rated these in terms of what was most important to them in nearly the exact same way. So it doesn't matter if you're coaching younger kids or older kids. Right. Trying hard, positive dynamics, positive coaching. Those are the top three. Clustered in the middle in terms of importance is learning and improving, followed by game time support, determinants of games, practices, team friendships, mental bonuses, and then always at the bottom is team rituals and swag. So no matter how you slice and dice the data and look at it, it comes out nearly the same. That's pretty interesting. And I I mean, I I hear pro athletes talking about you know, these things being important to them from time to time when they, particularly maybe when they've retired or they're about to retire or situation like that makes me think, okay, these are, you know, largely men, you know, and they're maybe probably early thirties who this is important to them as well. Not just the eight year old who's out their first day at soccer practice with that. Uh, Absolutely. I'm curious, what are mental bonuses? Great question. Great question. Mental the bonus- rest of them make perfect sense. And now I looked at mental <laughs> bonus. I've seen this list, I don't know how many times, and it just dawned yeah. on me, like, I don't know that I ever that I dove into what was in that bucket. Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. <clears throat> great question. So the the young athletes put four of the 81 determinants into the pile that they called mental bonuses. And that included um, having a positive attitude, the idea that playing their sport helps them relieve stress, ignoring the score, as well as winning were the four that they kind of conceptualized as the mental bonuses aspect of what is fun. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned winning because I was trying to figure out a good segue into talking about that. <laughs> so thanks for setting me up nicely on that Yeah, no, no, you're welcome. Yeah. Anytime, anytime. So uh, I, I hope I have this right. I, I have winning was uh, 48th when you sort of ranked it. And so certainly in the lower half yep. of the 81. Um, what kind of just – what was your take on, on sort of where that – how why that fit in there when as adults we often think that's the most important thing but the kids are telling us it's not that important to them um and maybe just you know elaborate on what what were the kids telling you as you were going through the qualitative part of this about about winning or maybe the overemphasis on winning yeah so a couple good points there that you bring up sam um you know one is that when we ask them 
qualitatively to brainstorm and tell us all of the things that make playing sport fun, you know, winning is one of those 81 determinants, right? But it's one of the 81. So when you examine the fun maps in detail, one of the, one of the, I think one of the kind of take home findings is that when you really look at that list, something that becomes quite clear is that winning is really kind of the only outcome driven determinant that's, that's on the fun map. All of the other 80 determinants are much more process oriented. And so what the kids are telling us is that fun is really the aggregate of these moment to moment experiences one of which can be the outcome of the game, which is winning. Um, but I think one of the things that kind of helps underscore its rating at, so it depends on which, which uh, research article you pick up. So the 2015 paper that we published that, that disseminates the fun map um, and, and kind of how those came together. That includes the aggregate of the young athletes data, coaches and parents. When we extracted the adult data and we only looked at what the kids were rating, what we found is when we rank order all the determinants from one all the way to 81, that winning actually ranks number 40. So it's right kind of smack in the middle. Um, but I, I think the message there is loud and clear in terms of, you know, where children place their importance. And when you look at all of the determinants that come before winning, so everything that's ranked, you know, rated higher than winning, so one through 39, it's really about those moment-to-moment process experiences, which are characteristic of trying hard, right? So kids, you know, they're talking about the physical experience. They want playing time. They want to compete. They want to be moving on the field or the ice or the court. They want as many puck touches, ball touches as they can possibly get. And, you know, you're talking also about the verbal experience. So when we when we look at the when we look at the top three fun factors of trying hard, positive team dynamics, and positive coaching, we're extrapolating not only what the physical experience of what fun is for kids, but also the verbal experience, right? So they they need that positive feedback, they need encouragement, they need crystal clear communication, they need to be questioned rather than directed all the time. Um, Ideally, they'd like refs that make consistent calls as well. Um, the emotional experience of fun. So everything from active listening to creating a psychologically and emotionally safe environment for them to thrive in their athletic development. We're also talking about, you know, fun being a social experience as well. So if you think about not just the positive coaching, but also the positive team dynamics. So facilitating a supportive environment, that's fun. High-fiving, fist-bumping, hugging, cheering each other along, that's fun. Being able to go and do things as a team outside of practices or games, right, that kind of fosters that, that team chemistry, that bondedness, that's part of the experience of fun as well as, as the context and the environment in which we create as adults and as coaches, right? So coming to practice and having well-organized practices that include small-sided greens and drills, having ideally um, good playing or training conditions in terms of having, you know, whether it's a nice field or a court or good ice. Um, and then also, you know, when it comes to their development and being challenged, they want to play against evenly matched teams. So these are these are the things that kids are talking about and they're telling us this is what creates a highly fun experience for them. And at the core of what is fun for them is athletic development.
I think one of the fascinating things I found about those top 39 that come in before winning and, and you kind of mentioned is that they're process oriented. There are also things that the coach has a large amount of control over. The kids do too. How you set up practice, how you do playing time are all things the coach controls. Winning is, you know, farther outside that control area. You just don't know. You're going to play a better team that day. I was a track runner. We, there were just yeah. guys faster than me, sadly. Um, yeah. And so, but I, but I could control my effort and my coach yeah. could do things to help me out with that more of an individual sport thing. But I think that may be the message. One of the takeaways from this for the coaches and the coach developers is making that environment and, and, and maximizing those things. So the kids have an enjoyable experience and hopefully they'll come back to either your sport or at least they'll have a good experience, tell their friends, and maybe they'll have a good experience in another sport because they're willing to try that. Maybe the first sport they try is not for them for, you know, whatever reason. I think we all understand and, and you know, get that the fact that a kid may just not like soccer but may like hockey better or maybe a more individual sport. Mm -hmm. um, kind of, that's my little bit of my bias is having gone that route myself. Yeah, um, with yeah. That. Um, I, I, I do want to hit on a couple of things because actually this is uh, one of the slides that we have again in one of our training at Ultimate is I do, and I've got to update the, the you know, we're winning rank there, but I also found it was interesting. A couple of the lower things that I cherry picked out, I'll be honest with you, were trophies and medals didn't seem to be huge importance. Um, yeah. As anybody who reached a certain point in their life and found like the shoebox of those and just had not thought about them in the years probably <laughs> can relate to, right? It, it was so yeah. meaningful that it went to a shoebox and I never thought about it again. Um, traveling to play. And then here's my all-time favorite. And I, I think it came in 81st, at least when I looked at it, was getting team pictures taken. I hated having my picture taken for sports things. Team weren't so bad, but that individual <laughs> picture I hated. So I immediately yeah. believe your research is completely valid because it validated my own experience and that I wasn't the only kid who didn't find that to be the most exciting thing to have done. Right. Um, no, I, so what's, what's really cool. Um, I think about, about you pulling those pieces out, even just for yourself, looking back on your, on your own experiences as an athlete as well. Um, you know, so when we did, when we did the, the study that generated all the fun maps, um, and that brainstorming piece, right? So the kids, the kids answered the prompt, one thing that makes playing sports fun for them is, and they came up with all these different ideas. Um, in the, in the work that we've, that I've been doing over in Sweden with the ice hockey, the Swedish ice hockey and basketball federations, um, essentially what we've been doing is trying to do the rigorous science behind taking the fun maps that, that the American kids here in the U.S. have generated and applying them into the Swedish sport culture. And so in doing that, we've been doing a lot of focus groups with basketball and ice hockey players over there. And what's a little bit different about what we've been doing is we've been doing um, focus groups with them. So we get to go into more detail and have a greater conversation around all of these fun determinants with them. And so to your point, I think one of the things that's, um, that's really interesting that's sort of come out of that data that we have so far is that even those kids talk about when they talk about the medals and the trophies, right? And we, we kind of ask them, like, how important is that to you? And they're like, meh, not so important, you know? Um, and I think that kind of, you know, cross-culturally underscores the fact that, you know, amongst the, the U.S. kids that generated the fun maps, it comes in ranks number 61, right? Earning medals and trophies out of the 81. Um, but in having the conversation with, with these Swedish ice hockey and basketball players, when they talk about the medals and trophies, they're kind of like, nah, it's like, it's nice to have, I guess. Um, not that important. Um, and then also talk about how the medal or the trophy for them is really more of a object that just 
kind of symbolizes the memory of the experience as well. And not so much that it signifies something else. The other is that when they talk about getting pictures taken, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> they, some of them talk about how it's not fun at all. <laughs> Um, that it's just kind of like a mess getting everyone organized to take a team picture or how they have to, you know, put this, uh, this uniform or this jersey on and then take it off and, you know, um, and that it's not super enjoyable. Um, but the other thing that they talk about too, in a similar, in a similar fashion to the way that they talk about the medals and trophies, they talk about, you know, the process of getting pictures taken, meh, not so fun. Actually having the picture is to them kind of like the medals and the trophies. Like they like to have it in the end because it's a symbol of their memories. Well, I I have to admit that I, I have, I, I totally get that because I have, um, I've done the Hood to Coast Relay Race on Oregon quite a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I have those pictures in a very prominent place uh, in my living room. And they are fond memories of looking back at that group and going, Oh, I remember, you know, that year, you know, the goofy thing that happened or that something happened. So I, I do do that. Luckily that was a much uh, less stressful process than trying to get uh, 32 10 year olds together for a football team picture, <laughs> you know, right. one, there were only 12 of us and we were all uh, adults. I'm not sure about the maturity level of the group, but we were all at least adults and organized ourselves pretty well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that where it's that memory of things, too. And I have some medals from races that I hold um, that I hold high as well. Um, yeah. And so maybe it's that it's that reminder that of that really good experience we had uh, more so than than that um, part of it. So thanks for elucidating on uh, on yeah. that and elaborating on that a, a bit. Cool. Hey, I want to I want to take a little divergence here. I want to pick your brain on you're working with uh with sweden um with those two groups in sweden i think a lot of people know the sport culture of norway because that got a lot of play after the last winter games and uh, with stories come out of there what's what's the youth sport culture like in sweden oh that's a great question um it's a it's, it's been a it's been a, a refreshing um it's been refreshing to, to work with, with those federations and just to kind of see how they do things and, and juxtapose it to what the culture is like here in the U.S. Um, for sure, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've learned and that we're kind of learning um, as a team in, in doing this research over there is that just from a general country cultural context, um, Sweden has a much greater sense of collectivism, right? Um, compared to the U S which is very individualistic. Um, and so one of the things that I think is, is quite interesting in kind of comparing the two cultures and then the data that we have so far qualitatively, um, when we were brainstorming with the kids to generate the fun maps and, you know, get all their ideas about what makes playing sport fun. Whenever the kids here in the U S would talk about winning, they would, they would just say winning, right. Or I like to win or winning is fun. But when we have these conversations over in Sweden with the focus groups that we're doing over there with the ice hockey, and the basketball players, they're very deliberate and intentional when they talk about, winning and they say, you know, winning as a team or winning together. That's fun. So there's certainly this sense of, of the group dynamic um, and the collectivism that is that is quite different. Um, and that's just sort of, you know, culturally as well. The, the U.S. being a much more highly individualistic, um, we tend to value the achievements of an individual person um, oftentimes more than, than the collective whole. And it's what we're finding so far is it's kind of the inverse when we talk about the sport culture over there. Um, I think some other, some other differences is um, just sort of how 
I think the the philosophical and value structure of sport over there is quite different. Um, it's starting to change over here. Um, but in Sweden, there is the sense that, you know, sport is for every person. Um, so there's a heavy emphasis on accessibility for all children, all people of all ages um, to, to play and to participate in sport. And there's also this sense of, um, they call it sport is joy. Ugh. Yeah. Very it's much so. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Sport is joy. Um, so I think that the, the way that we kind of think about it is just quite different. Um, and I think the, the coaching education over there, there's a, there's a, a greater emphasis on development, the role of development, um, and everything that goes into development. Um, so, you know, something else that's kind of been striking um, and great to, to hear through the focus group data that we have so far with the Swedish ice hockey and basketball players is, you know, inevitably when you talk about winning as being a determinant of fun, um, you kind of juxtapose that to like, well, what does it, what does it mean? Or what does it feel like to lose? Um, and, and the kids over there, they talk about losing in a different way. It's, um, they talk about it as part of, part of the necessary process of becoming better that it's an important it's an important thing to experience um and i don't think that that's something that in american sport culture that we as adults who are responsible for constructing these sport experiences for children that's not really a, a principle or value that i think is is infused or something that that we teach children no, that's a great that's a great contrast, and um, and looking at like you said, the the losing is a part of that process, and also I think makes you appreciate winning a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, have, having grown up an Atlanta Braves fan in the in the '70s when they were losing 90 games a year, and obviously I was not playing, but you know, a, as a kid, yeah, you know, your sports teams are your are you know, you live and die with them in so many ways. Yeah. That when they finally won, you know, were winning games in 1991, it just felt so good. And then for a decade or so, they were dominant. And I got to admit, talking to friends of mine, it's kind of like, well, you just come to expect that they're going to win 95 games every year. And yep. I can remember expecting them to lose 95 games every year. So yep. that, having gone through that, and some of the, like my nieces who had never known those days, only knew the Braves as winners – Kind yep. of lost a little bit of that. And it was interesting to have that discussion uh, with them. Again, vicariously living through another team, um, but certainly doing that. And I find it interesting because one of the things you talked about here in the positive coaching was, you know, allowing for an environment that, that realizes that mistakes are part of the learning process. To me, that, you know, that should extrapolate out to that losing as part of that process of getting better. And yet I, maybe that jump isn't always made with folks. It isn't. And, in you know, it's not it. It's not something that has been a part, I think, of American sport values or philosophy as far as, you know, coaching education. Um, but I think that it is something that we should be more cognizant of and something that I think the data through the fun maps um, has really shown us in terms of where even U.S. kids are rating winning, right? Yes, it's, an, it, it, it's, it's fun to win, but it's, it's certainly not the most important thing to winning. Um, there are 39 other determinants that rank higher. And really the process of, of being challenged, of getting better, of learning something new, in practice, being able to, to implement it and do it in a game, those types of things are far more important to kids. And I think one of, um, even though it's not something that, that is, that is kind of structured and part of the philosophy that we drive down into kids, I think in some ways it is something that, that, that our young athletes here in the United States are, are trying to tell us as adults. 
And I think that they've done that through the fun maps. And I also think that, you know, one of the back a few years ago, probably five, five years or so ago when the, when the fun maps first, um, first came out and there was tremendous, um, I think excitement about them from the media and from different sport organizations. And one of the stories that always comes to mind to me that I like to, to share and to, to elevate, um, as part of this narrative is we had one particular player, um, who his, his team or his teams that he had played on, they had participated in all three years of the different studies that we had going on. The first of which was the fun maps. But so I kind of got the opportunity to see him as a younger player and then sort of grow into a more mature player. And so when the Washington Post was first doing a story on the fun maps, they were really keen to engage um, parents, coaches, and players and wanted to interview those that had participated in these studies as kind of a more personal narrative around this research that was done. And one of the kids that, that volunteered um, to be interviewed by the Post, they, the journalist, the, the reporter at the time had asked them, you know, can you just, can you kind of think back on the last season and tell me a story about the most fun that you had had looking back on this past season. And he went on to recount one specific game that his team had played and how hard that game was, how much effort he and his teammates had put into it, how challenging, how hard they had to compete um, and that it was it was truly the most fun that he had had all season was that particular game. And the reporter asked him, you know, did you guys did you guys win or did you lose that game? And he said, we lost. We lost that game in the end, but it was by far the most fun that I had this season. That's really that's really cool. I think that's also very mature in a lot of ways to. Yeah to recognize that and to get that it was still fun, even though the outcome was not what we, what we wanted uh, with that. Cool. Um, well, I'm going to get close to wrapping up here. I've got a couple of uh, questions for you here left. One is of, of, of the research you published, the fun maps and everything else, what's maybe something that's flown under the radar that you think, uh, you know, should get a little more attention. I mean, obviously the, the fun part of this, the winning is not as highly rated or, or, or very important. But are some things in there you think would be really good for folks to maybe spend a little bit more time focusing on? Uh, there's probably a, a couple things. I think one is that um, when you think about when you think about the fun maps and all the 81 determinants, um, there's a concentrated focus for us to look at what is most important. Um, and inevitably, one of the errors that we sometimes make is then we disregard everything else and we kind of equate it to being not fun. Uh, when in fact, all of these things are fun. So when I say that, you know, fun is the aggregation, the accumulation of all of these 81 things, these very specific moment to moment experiences that we create for young athletes through the way in which we structure and organize sport for them, that we can't forget the things that kids rated as less important, um, because the, those are still part of the overall experience, part of the kind of pie, if you will, right? So it's really kind of metaphorically, um, helpful to think about if you think about you know the fun pie or fun as a pie chart um and you think about you know each of the 11 fun factors and all the 81 determinants that fall within them checking ourselves and remembering that fun is it's a total experience 
um, and that each of these determinants is one slice of that pie and each determinant, you know, based upon its importance going to be a larger slice of that pie, but just kind of remembering that the fun is really a total experience. I think the other is that, you know, so often when we, when we think about, we think about fun, we have a kind of our, our default way in which cultural norms, social norms have programmed us to think is to really kind of extrapolate how things are different from one another. And anytime we categorize or sort things, um, we tend to start to differentiate them rather than see how these things are similar. And just the nature of organized sport means that we take young athletes and we sort them into groups or into kind of piles, if you will, using the same kind of metaphor of concept mapping. But we categorize them into different groups based upon their sex, based upon their age, um, and based upon their playing level or their ability. And rather than seeing what their what their athletic needs and values are as similar, we tend to make more pronounced these subtle differences that might be there. And so what our data shows so far is that it doesn't matter whether a player is a girl or a boy, he or she is younger or older or playing at the recreational level or a more highly select elite level. What these kids fundamentally want when it comes to fun is athletic development. Um, and I think that that's something that we have to do a better job of is kind of overriding the way in which we thought about fun as this sort of, it's this three letter word. We know when we're having fun, we most certainly know when we're not having fun. And we then, you know, we then tend to think, well, okay, what is fun for you has to be different than what is fun for me. But in the context of organized sport, and what kids are looking for, our data shows that it's it's universally similar. And I think those are things that we have to keep in mind. I, I think that's a great point. Um, before you went down your pie analogy route, I was actually thinking of this as a stew. Ah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, think about it. I mean, a stew can have all these ingredients in it. Leaving out one is probably not going to ruin the stew, but it may not make it as flavorful as it would be if you had put in that ingredient. So, you know, certainly maybe, you know, to me having, um, you know, having beef in the stew is really important to me. And so that may be one I don't necessarily want to leave out. But you know what? I've had great stews that didn't have beef in it. Right. So um, in looking at that, and that's what I was thinking of, of, of just that recipe thing of there are 81 ingredients in here. And yeah, if I leave out the team picture, it's not going to ruin the stew. Yep. Um, but it's maybe not going to be as good as uh, it, the stew could be um, on that one. No, that's a great metaphor. Good job, Sam. I'll have to use that one again. Feel free to. It could yeah. be that I had a very small breakfast and lunch is approaching, and so my mind is, is uh, moving <laughs> in that direction. Yeah, it's sure. right now. <laughs> yep. um, kind, of, kind of the flip side of the question I started with about the under maybe recognized things, mm -hmm. um, what – What's something that you feel like maybe is not presented properly in either news stories or in the time I've been talking with you? You know, what's something that people get, and I put wrong in air quotes because not necessarily wrong, but maybe just not people present it in a, in, or, or could present it in a better way. No, I, that is a great question. Um, I stole that question from some other person I listened to one time. I cannot remember <laughs> who it is, but I, yeah, did not come up with that idea on my own. No, it's a, it's a good one. Um, I, 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 I kind of alluded to this a little bit um, in answering the, the previous question that you posed, but I think, I think to answer the question now is, 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 fun, that when you look at the data that we have, fun is fundamentally athletic development. And we, 
tend to think about fun as mutually exclusive from athletic development based upon our language, our framing, and the vernacular that we use. And so very often, fun is talked about as this separate thing from athletic development. And we as coaches often use, and this is a, I'm using this phrasing from another coach that I was talking to um, earlier this week, we use fun as like a throwaway word, right? Or we tell kids we're going to reward them with fun. So if you get through this practice or you do this drill, um, I'll let you do X, Y, or Z at the end and have fun. And really the, the emphasis should be on how do we create the most fun, most dynamic experiences for kids. Sport, if we go back to Sweden's philosophy that sport is joy, then sport in and of itself, right, that moment to moment active experience of moving and being engaged with a puck or a ball and your teammates should fundamentally be fun. And so we tend to make fun a harder concept to frame and infuse in our coaching curriculum because of the way in which we tend to talk about it as something separate from athletic development, as something to be given at the end as a reward, or we think about fun as, you know, early on, I used to talk about, you know, talking with coaches and say, well, how do you know when you're, when your players, when your team is having fun and they would describe them as, laughing and goofing off and being silly, that's when you know that they're having fun. But when you look at the data, and I think when we as adults kind of look back on our own reflective athletic experiences, that everything that the kids have have said and leveraged through the fun maps is fun, and it fundamentally is athletic development. Um, and we tend to we tend to think about fun as something that looks like and emulates big smiles, laughing, goofing off, and not being on task. But you know, when you ask kids what makes playing sport fun, they give you eighty one specific ideas that aren't germane to that description that I just gave. Well, uh, Amanda, two things came to mind while you were while you were describing that, and one is that. Two summers ago, I took up whitewater kayaking, um, right. something I'd done a little bit a long time ago, but really not. And so I spent actually the end of the summer of 2018, took some lessons. 2019, I took more lessons, spent more time on the river. And actually, in a lot of ways, I think this has helped shape my or reshape my focus on the sports side because I was learning new stuff every time I'm on the river. Right. And also the river changes every time you're on it, too. And and, and the joy of the first time that I ever got into an eddy and just nailed that eddy out. And for those of you going down the river, you want to find a little smooth patch, you, you get in there. And there's a proper way to do it, but you don't flip over. Because flipping <laughs> over in kayaks not really fun. But I can also remember the joy that you talked about the first time I ever did um, did a roll, did a combat roll, used to be called Eskimo roll. And the first time I ever did that and popped up on my own, it was such sheer joy and fun, but it was part of the athletic development part. And it got me thinking that if we separate out that the fun is something from separate from athletic development, then that the message could also be seen as then that part is not fun. The fun is you get to throw, you know, water balloons at the coach at the end of practice or whatever, not the fact that, you know, you accomplished, you know, you successfully completed something, you, you know, you caught the disc in the right way, um, you know, and, and, or made a great catch or made a great throw, um, those sorts of things. And I think that may be one of those messaging too, that the, the athlete development has some fun in it and we need to recognize that. So the kids start to realize that, oh yeah, this is fun and that we are reinforcing that along the way too. So those two popped in my head as, um, as, as you were, talking about that separation and that fun is baked into the first time you ever hit a shot in basketball 
probably if we all can think back on that, it was like, what a joyous experience that was. Yeah. And you only do that for, you only make that shot one time, right? You only make a first shot one time that you ever do it. Cool. Very good. Cool. Um, Well, I want to, I want to wrap up here. I appreciate your time. Um, Are you on social media? Do you do Twitter, Instagram, anything like that where people can follow you and catch up with what's going on in your world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the fun maps and all the research that, that I'm doing and putting out there is, is certainly on Twitter. So you can follow the, the fun maps and the fun conversation by following me. It's at AJ Visick, V as in Victor, I-S-E-K. So it's my first and middle initial followed by my last name. Super easy. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, I want, to, I want to thank you for taking time to, to talk about this research. I think it's a lot of stuff that many of us have, you know, certainly read in the in media. Uh, probably, maybe another handful of folks have actually delved in and read the papers. Mm-hmm. And um, and one thing I really say about the papers, I, I like that they were very accessible and, and written. I think in in you know not. I, I get the sense they weren't written just for other scientists to read and other researchers to read. Actually, you know, it looked like something that is easily digestible by the coach out there in the field who's just looking to be better or that coach developer for an organization who's looking to do it. So I, I commend you for, for not uh, over-academatizing it. <laughs> Absolutely. Academatizing? Okay, we, we're, I'm making up words here. But that's no, right. I, that might actually be a word, or at least uh, in, the, in the scholarship space. So that was, that was my goal, was to make it as consumable as possible. Good. Well, thank you very much, and uh, good luck with the rest of your research. And again, once again, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to, to share, Sam.